we just operate on a default mode that there are these voices and these ideas in our heads that we just take as truth that we should be beating ourselves up to do better, that we're not good enough. And not everyone necessarily realizes that those are conditioned voices that, you know, they come from our society, they come from certain moments in our life, and that we've built these systems inside of us. And meditation can help us unravel it first by just even seeing it. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your life through the simple act of slowing down. When I first started this podcast, I often described the creative process to people as the act of finding your voice, made completely literal. And when I say that, I'm using a common trope that we use to talk about our internal self by referring to this idea of a singular internal voice, your voice. But the fact of the matter is, each of us contains many, many voices, each with different personas. Some that admonish, and some that complain, and some that encourage. And finding peace of mind and unlocking your creativity and even being more productive is in many ways about understanding how to navigate these voices, how to observe them and tune into them, and when necessary, disarm them. And building a meditation practice is one of the most direct ways to begin to deepen your awareness of those internal voices. And that's what led me to my guest for today, Sebene Selassie. Sebene is a meditation teacher and a writer who was originally born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and raised in Washington, D.C. She has studied Buddhism for over 25 years and is the former director of the New York Insight Meditation Center. Prior to devoting herself to teaching meditation full-time, Sebene worked for nonprofits, large and small, doing social justice work in the United States and in West Africa. She is also a three-time breast cancer survivor. In this episode, Sebene brings this rich tapestry of experience to bear in a conversation about confronting your inner critic and learning how to be more compassionate with yourself and others. We talk about the importance of asking the question, what am I not willing to feel? How to break the habit of future tripping where you're always obsessing about what will happen next? And how meditation can help you build your capacity to hold more more joy, more pain, more life. Let's dive in. When people come to you to learn about meditation or to move deeper into their practice, what do you think that they're typically seeking? Is there a common denominator of sorts? I think the common denominator is seeking alleviation from suffering. I mean, that's what brought me to meditation. I think that's what brings most people. And what suffering means to people is really varied. So for some people, that might mean, you know, having some idea that meditation will help them in work or in their artistic practice or in something that they're trying to gain more focus or um, just just more sense of a presence around. And then some people, it's really emotional turmoil, like a breakup or um, dealing with some kind of family trauma or patterns that they can't seem to change and thinking meditation will help. There are a few people, I think, who really come 
in earnest with a deeper spiritual quest. I mean, I think that's probably what's underlying a lot of our general anxiety anyways, is that deeper yearning. But <clears throat> there are some people who come with, you know, really like having investigated for themselves some uh, spiritual philosophies or religious understanding and then wanting to dive into that. I was asking that question because I feel like there's so many different meditation apps that are out now. It's starting to promote this idea of meditation as a kind of quick fix to sort of health and well-being. You know, if you look at an app like Headspace, which is originally positioned as, you know, a gym for the mind, which is this very sort of pedestrian description of meditation, also one that really is focused on utility. What do you think about that positioning of meditation, thinking of it as something with utility? Is that the right way to think about it? You know, I really don't think there's a right or a wrong way to think about meditation. And here I would separate meditation from um, spiritual practice because there are there's plenty of meditation that is separate from spiritual practice. I don't think it's good to think of spiritual practice that way because you're really um, you're really misleading yourself in terms of deepening into spiritual understanding. It's never going to happen from that point of seeing it as sort of a quick fix or as a utilitarian thing like you're describing. Meditation has many, I think, different levels of, of practical application. And I'm sort of of the school, and people differ here who are meditation teachers, that any kind of meditation is probably going to be helpful and can be a doorway for people. So there's some controversy around things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know, that it removes the ethical foundation and the spiritual foundation from these teachings and just makes it something about stress relief. Well, that's a door for a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily, you know, take themselves into a spiritual context to learn meditation, but would sign up for an eight-week stress reduction class that comes with, um, you know, some sort of scientific proof that there's benefits and that this will help people in some way or another. So I don't really see a problem with that, like that doorway. How far that's going to lead you in terms of um, alleviation of real suffering you know, when meditation for me is a practice for when the shit really hits the fan, right? So there's there's ways in which I've seen um, my meditation practice, which I've been practicing for years, really come into practical use when things get rough, you know? And I, I've, I, my practice really shows up as the foundation for me being able to deal with difficulties in my life. If you're only sort of at the surface of meditation and using it to fall asleep or using it, these are all, there's nothing wrong with that, using it to fall asleep or using it, you know, to de-stress and in um, tense moments here and there that can be helpful but that's not really going to serve you when when real difficulties show up and the power of meditation has to offer for that when I was going to ask you how you frame your practice for yourself and so it's really as a preparation of sorts for difficult times well you know some people say that meditation is really preparation for death and that's you know on many levels and, and that you can explore that but yeah, I would say that that's a, a big part of my meditation practice is, is not only about the moment. Sometimes we can overemphasize kind of the present moment idea of meditation, um, but it's, it's really building your capacity to hold more, you know, whether that's um, this week or in, 
in two years when something shows up that you didn't necessarily plan for or want. So coming back to this idea of presence, one aspect of meditation, this is something you've written about, seems to be about confronting or maybe just witnessing your inner voices. And I wanted to talk specifically about the inner critic that most of us carry around inside of us, which for many people can be incredibly debilitating or paralyzing. How do you see meditation as addressing that voice of the inner critic specifically? Well, you know, I think that, first of all, many of us can see the voice of the inner critic. Many cannot. Like, we just operate on a default mode that there are these voices and these um, ideas in our heads that we, we just take as truth, you know, that we should be beating ourselves up to, to do better, that um, we should be pushing ourselves in certain ways, that we're not good enough, that, you know, we're not smart enough, that we're not doing enough. And not everyone necessarily realizes that those are conditioned voices that, you know, they come from our society, they come from certain moments in our life that, uh, and that we've built these, these systems inside of us. And meditation can help us unravel it first by just even seeing it. So there's that, like, first we have to actually recognize that there is that voice and it's usually many different voices. And I think that just the fact of slowing down, um, so many of us move so quickly in our lives. Um, even if we're, we don't look at ourselves as speedy people, our minds are moving so fast and there's nothing like a meditation practice or especially a meditation retreat when you have more time, whether that's one day or 10 days or more, um, to really witness, oh, that's what's going on in my head all the time. This is what's driving me. And those voices can come out in, in really subtle ways sometimes. You know, they'll, they'll sound like they're trying to help you. Um, but they're actually um, undermining your capacity to really be with yourself in a compassionate way. Well, and it's interesting what you were saying about slowing down because I was thinking about meditation seems to be becoming increasingly popular in a certain way. And it's happening at the same time as the sort of pace at which we all live and work is accelerating and becoming sort of increasingly faster. And it feels to me almost like one of the reasons that we might be seeking meditation more and more is, as you say, literally just as even separate from any spiritual practice or even separate from what you you might get out of it is just a way to create time. Especially time away from our gadgets. Like we have so little space anymore that's not filled with content and information. And I mean, I am so guilty of this, walking down the street, either listening to things or literally reading things as I'm walking <laughs> and passing. I passed someone this morning. I was looking for um, what time I was supposed to meet someone this morning for a coffee. And um, as I passed another woman who was also looking at her phone and just that kind of heartache and heartbreak that this is what it's come to, you know, that we, we're not even um, able to walk down the street without being engaged in in, in our gadgets. So if we think of information as part of that speed, that speediness, because we, there are some of us who may not have, um, you know, really busy schedules, though probably anyone listening to this podcast does. <laughs> and I know most people in New York have that just that speed of, of having a lot of things going on day to day. But what's happening in our minds in terms of the speed, like the amount that we're taking in, is a factor in that because we're taking in more and more information more and more quickly. 
you know, the faster we scroll and the faster we scan. Yeah, and I don't think we're, it's happened at some sort of pace that I don't think a lot of us are even really conscious of that. Um, I was interviewing a sleep scientist and she was, you know, we were talking about people having trouble sleeping and she was um, talking about, you know, one of the reasons people have so much trouble sleeping is thinking about just what you're describing, you know, the sort of pace at which people are moving and the level of busyness and the level of uh, information consumption and that we do that and we do that and we do that and we do that. And then we like go lay down into bed and we're like, why can't my brain stop? You know, and it's literally like as if your brain has been, you know, maybe running like the Boston marathon all day. And then you like, you know, ran through the finish line tape and just lay down in bed. And we're like, why am I so worked up right (laughs) Right? but it's like that's become this normal and and we're not even cognizant of it Mm -hmm. yeah I mean if you just think about the amount of like um televised content it's not television anymore but the number of shows that exist now and I'm always amazed when I meet people and how much they're caught up on and they've watched this and this and this and this. And I mean, for any of us who are older, who remember when there were, you know, just a few networks, we're talking about the equivalent of like thousands of networks, but all in one little box. My, my sister is uh, intellectually disabled and um, she's kind of learning how to use a computer. She can't read or write, but she knows how to scroll through Netflix. And one time she was asking for puzzles, new puzzles. I wanted to buy her. So I opened the computer and I, and I, ordered puzzle for her and then put her back to Netflix. And she just looked at me and she said, everything is in there. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you're actually right for it. Everything is in there. Yeah. And you know, it's just incredible. Like we take, we've, we've acclimated to it so quickly that it's just normal that in our pockets, we have these machines that, um, you know, reveal so much data to us all the time. And so do you see meditation as almost um, as creating that space, but also kind of helping us declutter to use another sort of productivity oriented word in a way? Yes, definitely. And, um, you know, at this point, it's like it's just triage to try and use 20 minutes a day to create a little space. Hopefully what it does is start to... um, reorient us to starting to make more and more space, whether it doesn't have to be that we're suddenly meditating hours and hours a day, but time away from our gadgets with our families and friends and, and ways that we, we sort of create stop gaps around all of that data and information. Yeah. Well, so coming back to this idea of the inner critic and the piece I was referring to before you were talking about uh, the necessity of sort of befriending your inner critic, or at least not actively rejecting your inner critic. Could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, you know, that's really related to a central um, tenet of any meditation system that I'm aware of that is, is that works, um, is that resistance doesn't, doesn't help. Um, so there's this sort of modern equation around meditation that pain times resistance equals suffering. So whatever the pain is, whether it's an inner critic or it's an actual pain in our body, if we resist it, we're actually just creating more tension. So we're not going to solve the problem of, um, you know, wanting more stillness or spaciousness in our lives or wanting a lessening of the voices of the inner critics by resisting them because we're meeting tension with tension. So we have to sort of make space, and that's where this practice of building a capacity for awareness so knowing what's happening first of all and just realizing oh there are these voices I'm not just kind of running with them 
and and finding myself down a storyline where, you know, I am beating myself up for um, not having finished a project on time. Uh, but we're starting to say, oh, wow, okay, I noticed that I'm criticizing myself from this. What, What is that really about? And making the space to be able to first witness and allow and accept, which um, starts to loosen that tension and that habit of creating more anxiety and more resistance around something and starting to investigate and go underneath what's that what that's really about i i had i was late on a delivery of something recently and i noticed when i started to make space for it and allow myself to actually feel it rather than just kind of push it away that there was a lot of um just anxiety around disappointing this person that I was supposed to deliver something to. And, you know, that disappointment goes way back. Like we can start to trace that these are patterns that are deep and they're old. And that's where meditation starts to connect with psychology and um, starts a, a, a process of uh, unwinding patterns that are probably really ingrained in us for, for decades, depending on how old we are. And how do you see that awareness unfolding in your own practice? Uh, Moment to moment. Um, (laughs) I was reflecting on something that one of my teachers, Tara Brock, uh, says a lot. She asked this question, what are we not willing to feel? So, you know, for me, when, whenever I notice sort of a negative emotion or, or tension in my mind or, or also in my body, because it usually is related to something going on emotionally, I start to try and make space for it and notice like, okay, what do I, what do I not want to feel right now? It's usually some version of fear or um, something related to uh, not feeling like I'm good enough or not um, doing enough, which is, I think, a big one for most of us in this culture now. So that process of recognizing tension is the first step. And and that's what I mean by some people don't even know they have these critics. They're just on autopilot of, you know, constant performance and productivity. So that first recognition is is really the, the, the first step to notice. And I've gotten pretty good at that. I hope over the years that I'm aware of when I'm um, reacting out of my patterns. The next challenge is actually making space for allowing it because we can't really, if we start to investigate it without making that space, we're just coming up with stories and we usually end up in um, either justification for why we're feeling that way or going into modes of trying to fix it before we've even really relaxed around it. And so when you say making space, what do you mean exactly? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a psychologist and I'm not uh, trained in any kind of somatic um, work in a deep way. So um, I'm saying this as a, a lay person, but a meditation teacher, that f- what, I, what I know and um, in my own experience, what I've seen in most people is that when we have a psychological tension or reaction, there's usually an equivalent body sensation there's usually tension in the body, and the body and the mind are not separate things. Um, they're, they're, we're, we're one thing. Um, we talk about it as if it's separate, and even the word mindfulness, you know, we put the word mind right in it, thinking that there's um, only a mental process there. So for me, making space means actually m- making some room in the body. And so it, it's the body and the heart and the mind, but um, really pausing, 
So rather than jumping into the next thought or trying to figure out and fix something, um, you know, I can feel that sense of like, oh, I feel really shitty for not handing this in on time. Like, what's going on? So pausing, like noticing there's tension in the heart space or noticing there's tension in the belly and starting to be like, okay, well, what is that really about? And when I really breathe into it, like you're doing now, or make some space in the body and, and, and in my mind that's not being cluttered by other thoughts at the moment, I can sense that there's that disappointment. So it's a process of really allowing yourself to um, stay with an emotion or stay with a sensation uh, long enough to, to have some, some clarity about it. It's time for a quick break now, but stay with me. After the jump, 7A and I talk about future tripping and how meditation helped her get through her battle with breast cancer. This episode is brought to you by Hover. What's that Shakespeare quote, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? Well, clearly the bard wasn't thinking about domain names when he penned those lines. These days, your URL is basically your home base for the internet. And it just doesn't feel right if it's anything less than perfect. You've got to find the domain name that's a perfect expression of you and your brand. And I would know because I'm literally wrestling at this very moment with what URL to use for a new project I'm launching. And when I need inspiration, I head right on over to Hover.com. Hover has roughly a gazillion extensions on tap including .me, .design, and my new favorite for the not-so-serious entrepreneur, .lol. They also offer best-in-class customer support, a simple, beautiful user interface, and none of those gross upsells that dog you on other domain sites. Plus, Hover Connect makes it super easy to connect your new domain to a bunch of popular website builders with just a few clicks. Every great idea deserves a great domain name. So head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly now to get 10% off any new domain. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Harvest. We all know that we want more time to do the work that matters. But if you don't know exactly how you're spending your time, it's hard to change your habits. Enter Harvest, a simple and intuitive time-tracking tool that helps shine a light on exactly how you're investing your time. It creates easy-to-understand visual reports that track how much time you're spending on specific projects and helps you estimate how long it will take to complete future projects based on that data. Harvest also makes getting paid painless by automatically generating and sending invoices to clients based on your tracked hours and allowing them to pay you seamlessly online. And don't worry, Harvest can slide right into your existing workflow. Desktop and mobile apps let you track time on multiple devices and integrations with popular tools like Asana, Basecamp, and Trello allow you to bring Harvest timers into the tools you're already using. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. 
You bring up the issue that we talk about mindfulness practice, and I think that so many of us when you come to meditation, you bring this idea of it as a sort of intellectual activity, perhaps, or a way to, to calm the mind or become more focused. But one of the first foundations of cultivating awareness is coming back into the body, right? And I feel like you were, you know, talking before about technology. And I think that that specifically our relationship with technology has pulled us so deeply out of our bodies. We spend so much time in this sort of two-dimensional screen space, which is very much an imaginary and very future-projected type of world. It feels like one of the most powerful things about meditation is that ability to bring it back into your body. But I don't think a lot of us come to it necessarily thinking about it that way. Yes, and it's not our fault because we called it mindfulness and there has been a tendency for a lot of the Western teachers of meditation, I think, or at least the popular forms that have really taken off to not emphasize the body or at least in kind of the most popular forms that have reached the the masses have not emphasized the body. When you delve into um, practices or even something like MBSR, mindfulness by stress reduction, there is actually a strong emphasis on the body, but you really have to delve into committing to the eight-week class to discover that. But yes, you know, I've witnessed that if you look at a lot of uh, the way, anyways, Buddhism has traveled through different countries, it really adapts to whatever culture it goes to and takes on um, certain philosophies, but also uh, creates certain correctives for whatever the, um, the challenges or particular sufferings are of different um, societies. So you see the Buddhism in Japan is very different than in Tibet. And I really think that as um, these practices evolve here, that we'll have to come back to the body more and more because it really is the corrective that this culture needs. There's such a separation of mind and body and there's such um, a needing to heal the particular traumas that people have here, which are often about disembodiment, that they'll, we really need that corrective. And why do you think that's unique to the United States? Well, not just the United States, but I think the Western world in general, um, you know, because of Cartesian dualism <laughs> and the Enlightenment, <laughs> um, you know, everything has gone up and mm-hmm. centered on the head and uh, and really on, a, on a, a worldview that's based in scientific materialism and, and not really connected to a feeling sense of, of, our, of our existence, yeah. But do you feel that as well with technology, like when you are interacting with your phone or interacting with your computer? To me, that feels also very much like you're just completely in this disembodied headspace. Yeah, that's probably perhaps the final outcome of of, of that trajectory. And um, yes, and I think it's interesting that you also see the backlash of, against that and so many people um, really re- returning to some forms of embodied living and you see this fascination now with all things ancient and sacred and um, going back to the land and um, there's issues within that in terms of the cultural appropriation and the thoughtlessness that surrounds some of it but I think it is part of that yearning to to reconnect to something that we've been disconnected from for a long time yeah technology being yeah that utmost symbol of it when you alluded to earlier, talking about kind of all of the different thoughts and ideas that we sort of absorb from culture that maybe feed into this inner critic that we're maybe not entirely conscious of, 
I've been recently beginning to study Reiki. I'm very like new in the practice. And as I've been working, one thing that I found, especially in the, in the very early stages, was that when I was working with someone, they would sort of transmit their thoughts to them, and I would have those thoughts. And I didn't recognize that at first. I just thought that they were my thoughts. And um, afterwards, I would talk to them about you know what had happened, and I would realize, oh, that, that very unusual thought that I had was actually something that came from you. It wasn't my thought, in fact. And that makes sense for Reiki, right? It's a form of energy healing, and you're sort of acting as a, a vessel, so that sort of flowing makes a lot of sense. But it really made me think, well which thoughts that I'm having are my thoughts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I was, you know, curious to get your perspective on that in terms of meditation and, and, you know, uh, you know, does it kind of assist you with starting to untangle some of that? Because I think that, you know, as you say, some of us aren't even aware of the inner critic, but there's so many things that we've just taken on board and, you know, become lenses through which we think about ourselves and our work and our relationships, but they might not really be sort of our thoughts, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. There's this Krishnamurti quote that I love where he said that the, you think you're thinking your thoughts, you're not, you're thinking the culture's thoughts. And if we just think of it in terms of our, our evolution as, as individuals from birth to now, everything we've learned, we've learned through society. So in a way, none of my thoughts are my own because I've learned language and um, learned ideas only through other human beings. Not to mention that most of the thoughts you have are repetitive, something like 90-something percent of your thoughts are not original. You've had them the day before. We think we're being original, but we're not. (laughs) I've probably said that exact sentence, you know, or three uh, many times in my teaching. And... um, yeah, so there, there's that basic fact that like anything we're thinking is constructed um, within within this world uh, we're living. Um, but there's there's also just the all the unconscious conditioning that we have that we're not aware of. And um, I teach a, a lot around unconscious bias and just looking at how different our unconscious uh, thoughts and actions and speech are compared to our conscious values. And all the research, a lot of it has been done in the medical world around people who claim and and really believe that they have um, conscious egalitarian values, and they do. And when studies are done in across various disciplines and different with different controls, we see that people have un, sorts of unconscious racist or sexist um, speech and actions and thoughts. So. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on with the mind that we're not aware of. So we can have unconscious bias towards other people, but we can also have internalized oppression. Um, there's something that's been studied and talked about a lot that's called stereotype threat. And it's uh, the tendency for people who are stereotyped, like people of color or women, um, to go into situations and when they're reminded of their status, um, of their race or their gender, they will not perform as well, let's say, on a math test or in things that they are assumed to be worse at. And of course, most women or people of color don't need to be reminded of who they are and what their identity is in society. So we've internalized all these thoughts about ourselves, about others, and we think we have these conscious egalitarian goals and values, but we're actually moving through the world with this unconscious conditioning. 
So there's all sorts of ways that um, these inner critics, which are, are just personal voices, but also our voices around ourselves in, in terms of our identity or our voices about other people, are really running the show. And how you said that you teach specifically addressing this issue in certain classes, how do you go about that, like sort of starting to unpack that, or how does that play out in the meditation practice? Part of it is just naming that. So, you know, a lot of people um, don't want to recognize that about themselves. You know, they might want to talk about it about other people. Um, but w- really starting to look at the data that shows that how much this affects um, everyone and very few of us are free from this kind of unconscious conditioning. And then to do really simple reflections. Um, sometimes I'll hand out uh, pictures of just various people of various races and genders and backgrounds and um, have people just contemplate these images in a reflective way and, and then share around what conscious thoughts they were aware of and what some unconscious conditioning that may have surfaced through their through their awareness. Um, but, you know, it takes time and it takes the ability to actually start to slow down and notice um, what our response is to different people, what our response is to the world. Um, and that's a willingness to start to create space in our minds that's not going to be filled with all sorts of worrying and planning all the time, but being able to see thoughts as they're starting to arise in different situations. Well, speaking of worrying and planning, um, interview I was listening to with you before this, um, you used the phrase future tripping, (laughs) which I hadn't heard before, actually. Could you describe what that is? Most of us are not living in the the present moment in the sense that we're not responding directly to what's happening um, around us. We're actually living in the past and replaying things we said or did, um, trying to come up with different responses, which is extremely useless. I mean, that is probably the most useless of uh, past tripping, I guess it is, is the worst tripping. But really, so many of us are living in the future, like trying to, you know, protect ourselves from various experiences, create scenarios, create conversations, um, look for ways to to, um, control. But really, it's not possible. All we can really do is, is, is um, do what we need to do in order for uh, our lives to go out the way that we aspire for them to, which might include planning. Um, but future tripping would be planning for the 18th time um, the talk that you've actually already given three times before. Um, you know, someone on retreat who is planning what they're going to do when they leave the retreat for the 20th time. Okay, so you might need to kind of plan your route. Um, or remind yourself that you need to get a ride from the airport uh, or to the airport, but you don't necessarily need to go over it 20 times um, in one meditation sitting. I see that happening a lot. Or, you know, for me, it's really disaster um, mitigation. Like, I I kind of plan for disasters that haven't really happened yet and probably won't happen, but I, I... I tend to, because of my own history of trauma or my own upbringing, tend to fear the worst outcome. And so I'll start planning around the worst outcome happening when when I have no idea what the outcome will be from a particular situation. So, yeah, um, sort of reminding myself that I need to do the least amount of planning possible so that I can show up and just do what I need to do when I get there. Right. Yeah. I've started using the term internally for myself, like relitigating. Cause I, that's, and I do that with conversations a lot. I feel like, or planning conversations or in 
you know, reaction to an email that creates some tension. I'll find myself like litigating and relitigating some, you know, argument or conversation or one that might happen in the future. And then you, you become conscious, you see yourself doing this, you realize that you're completely closing off any possibility of anything interesting or new happening when that event Mm -hmm. arrives, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know how it is for you, it's usually around some fear of rejection or, um, you know, hurting someone's feeling or someone misinterpreting something when I'm going through conversations like that over and over again. And if I can just kind of, again, you know, allow and make space and be with that, like, what am I not willing to feel? Like if I just feel that like, oh, I really care about this relationship or I really care about what this person thinks about me or I don't care about this relationship and, you know, that, that that's something to look at as well. I mentioned the term future tripping and this originally came up. You were talking about at that time your battle with breast cancer and you were you were just talking now about your predilection for disaster planning, which makes a lot of sense when you're moving through situations like that. You're a three-time survivor of breast cancer at this point. What role did your meditation practice play when you were moving through that multiple times, which I can only imagine was incredibly intense and scary and also just painful process? Mm. Yeah. um, You know, luckily I was... um, a meditator before I got diagnosed the first time. So I had that foundation of a practice to help support me through that. And it, it was still really hard. You know, there's, uh, especially the first time something really, I was 34. So I was really young. I knew no one else my age. And actually at that point, no one else who had gone through that. So just navigating all of that, um, was a lot of, uh, experience of just seeing like all the fear and planning your funeral and um, imagining the worst outcomes of certain treatments and fearing surgeries. Um, So that practice of just really being able to come back to the breath, come back to the body and creating a lot of space um, to allow for that. So that meant, um, you know, increasing my practice time. And, And I do do that. I tend to do more practice when I'm going through difficult difficult things and doing retreats, um, working with people one-on-one who, uh, were really skilled at holding that. Um, that was really important for me. There, there's no getting around. It's not that meditation then gets rid of all of that fear. Um, and so learning to actually be with it and being willing to feel that, you know, to sit in that terror um, which is probably all of ours ultimate terror is that that fear of death or the death of loved ones yeah it, it is a it is a fierce fierce practice is a, you learn to sit in really a real uncomfortableness you know a real understanding of what it feels like when fear is coursing through the body we tend to just push that away and I you know there are times when I did that I remember very distinctly around the second diagnosis that my husband and I just um, I think we were just so shocked and I really never expected to get diagnosed a second time by the third time I wasn't happy about it but I was like okay well <laughs> I know how to do this now yeah um, but the second time we went through this marathon of Battlestar Galactica we watched all the seasons so quickly and there there was a need to kind of just disconnect like I couldn't sit in it all the time 
um, and needed, you know, hours at a time to just be fully absorbed in something else and, and to not beat myself up about that, you know. Could you imagine going through that without having had your meditation practice? No, I say all the time, I don't know how people survive most things without a meditation practice or some kind of practice. You know, I don't want to say that this practice or Buddhist practice or um, mindfulness practice is the only thing, but uh, I, I really feel for people who, who really don't have um, tools you know, whether that's a really deep yoga practice that helps them connect to, um, you know, ways of sitting with difficulties in life or a prayer practice or some kind of spiritual practice. Um, and even if you're not, you know, religious, but some way, whether it's being in nature on a regular basis, but some regular way of um, holding the complexities of our lives, our lives are only getting more complex. And um, I really feel for the young people, my nephews and my friends' kids who um, who don't necessarily have the tools to navigate something that is so uncharted. You know, for for centuries, life was not that different, even with some of the technologies that came along. We, we are really in uncharted territory now, and I, I hope that people are finding ways to, to grapple with that. And you've talked in the past about dealing with breast cancer, moving through that pain, moving through all of those challenges. You talked about the ability to put it in perspective and talked about some of the situations you've been in with doing social justice work, with working in refugee camps. And I wanted to kind of bring this back. We, we talk about happiness and well-being like almost interchangeably these days, kind of culturally speaking. You see those two words together quite frequently. But so much of well-being depends on this ability to kind of put things in perspective and to be able to put yourself and your experience kind of on a continuum, which doesn't always involve a lot of positive thinking per se. I'm thinking here of the, the five recollections mm. and I'm wondering if you could describe what those are and, and kind of the role that they play in meditation. Yeah, that's um, a teaching in Buddhism and it's a chant actually that's chanted daily in a lot of monasteries and um, they're the recollections of our reality. So the recollection that, you know, I have not gone beyond aging, I have not gone beyond ill health, I have not gone beyond death. Um, everything that is dear to me will be lost and every action that I take now will affect my future outcomes. So you recollect that every day that I will grow old, I will get sick, I will die, I will lose everything around me at some point. Um, either through my own death or, or their death or deterioration, and everything I do will impact everything that happens in the future. And that seems really heavy, but it's actually just the truth. It's, it's not even outlandish. It's, it's just the reality. The only thing we all share is birth and death, and everything that happens in between is, is really a, a, just a question of fate in terms of how much time and what kind of time we get here. For me, that that... Um, perspective taking has been so important, um, especially as Westerners and moderns and people who almost assume that happiness is guaranteed and that um, that even success or wealth is guaranteed, um, and and not to deny those things or think that those things are bad um, that we need to lead ascetic lifestyles, but just to grapple with the fact that that's that's not true it's not true for the majority of the world first of all um, and it's not guaranteed for any of us there's this uh, 
the late Zen teacher, Charlotte Jacobeck, an American Zen teacher, and she said that joy is what's happening minus our uh, opinion of it. So joy is what's happening minus our opinion of it. And she's making the distinction there between joy and happiness, that happiness has an opposite, and which is unhappiness. But joy is uh, this capacity to be with whatever is happening with a sense of ease and allowing. And it doesn't mean that we don't change uh, difficult circumstances or that we don't try and encourage um, positive experiences, but we don't resist life constantly trying to control everything just for our happiness because that's impossible. There is unhappiness, there is ill health, there is death, there is sickness, um, there are all those things. And to kind of grasp at this eternal constant happiness is really delusional, in fact. Well, do you think that then closes off the possibility of joy in a way? It certainly is not a sustainable level of joy. I mean, the, the people who I uh, really admire in terms of their meditation practice or their spiritual practice, they seem to have uh, a really sustained joy. And I wouldn't say that means that they're happy all the time. That's certainly not true. And it doesn't even mean that they're always in joy um, because I haven't, as far as I know, met any enlightened masters. But I do think that's possible. I think it's possible to to live in the kind of joy that you can see in someone like um, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, or the Dalai Lama, people who just seem to embody, and people who've been through very difficult circumstances in their life that seem to embody this 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 eternal joy. And in order to get there, you kind of have to have this counterweight, right? Like this perspective. Um, you wrote this really beautiful post on your blog about contemplating death, which you wrote about a year after your mother passed. And it was about how your sister contemplated your mother's death. Could you talk about that story? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, my sister is intellectually disabled. So she's, um, she's 51. Uh, and she has the intellectual capacity of a toddler. So she can't read or write, and she speaks in kind of incomplete sentences, but she's pretty mature. She's probably more mature than me in a lot of ways. Um, and after my mom died, she was had lived with her for 50 years, and she was kind of really just grappling with um, how to how to understand her grief, and she would need to process every day with us, um, with me and my husband. She was living with us for about a year after my mom died, and every day she would go through the fact that our mom had died and start to list all the people she knew who had died as a way to understand that. So she would say, Mommy died. I'd say, yes, Mommy died. Abata, our uncle died. Yeah, Abata died. Michael Jackson died. Yep, Michael Jackson died. <laughs> and she would go through and list all the people she could remember who had died. And then she started doing this thing where she would start listing everyone who she knew would die, which is everyone. So she would go, well, you're going to die. Yeah, I'm going to die. Daddy's going to die. Uh, Obama's going to die. Yes, Obama's going to die. And she would go through, and every day we would spend, I don't know, like, at least 15 minutes a time, multiple times a day. And that was her grief process. Like that was her way of grappling with death. And it was such an amazing death contemplation because, you know, we would usually end up in fits of laughter about some aspect of it because she would think Stevie Wonder is dead, but he's not, or she would forget that Prince had died. And, um, but it was a really beautiful reminder 
uh, you know, that in this really simple way, she could understand too that you know we're all going to die and that we we can grieve our mom, but we don't have to be in you know deep depression or sorrow about it all the time. Um, we both went through a lot of grief together, um, but that was one way of releasing it. Yeah, well, and most of us, I think, would be very afraid to do that type of death contemplation. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, thinking about looking at everyone that you know and just sort of literally stating out loud that they're all going to die. Yeah, she's pretty fearless. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked about how that eventually moved from you know, something that's probably kind of pretty dark initially to almost more of like a, from a death contemplation, almost to more of like a gratitude contemplation. Do you feel like that same, not exactly, but that sort of arc has been, is also how your meditation practices unfold? Do you feel like it's moving more towards gratitude and sort of an awareness of that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's nothing like, cancer to deepen your meditation practice and (laughs) gratitude practice. So I'm very lucky that I wake up every day with a sense of gratitude because I've just been, I was very sick at certain times and not sure if I would make it. So um, for me, that that has come more easily. What's really shifted for me recently as my practice continues to mature and deepen is um, gratitude for the difficulties. So it's easy to be grateful for my life and for all the wonderful things I have, which are many. Um, and as you mentioned, I worked in refugee camps. Um, having perspective and witnessing what is possible in this world, which are you know can be horrors and and deep deep loss, it can be easy to be grateful for what's good. For me, what's been interesting is starting to really appreciate um, the, the challenges, to actually be grateful for my experiences with cancer and to be grateful for the annoyances that come up during the week or certain people who I have challenges with because they're really, they're, that is deepening my practice more than anything. So if anyone listening was thinking about undertaking a meditation practice, thinking about starting, what would you tell them? I would tell them to uh, really reflect on how they best learn. So very few people are autodidacts. Um, so you're likely not going to learn from just reading something and then trying it yourself. Very few people are also self-learners in the sense of being able to self-motivate. Um, so you're likely not going to succeed at a meditation practice if you just tell yourself that you're going to do it every morning on your own. So if you tend to fall into either of those huge categories of people, which is most people, it's really helpful to have some way to learn from someone else, not just a book. So whether that's an app or um, going to a class, and then also learn in community in some way. So that can be hard because most people fit in meditation not at times when they're with people and may not necessarily have time to go to class every day or you know multiple times a week but there are many ways to connect to people now um, through various apps that have you know group functions or that have coaches involved or I know a lot of people who meditate together um, virtually I did that with a friend actually who wanted to learn meditation after she had a health uh, issue so I'd just meditate with her every morning on, on FaceTime. So finding some way to have both the instruction and also the accountability. 
I think that's the most important thing than what style of meditation you do or what kind. Um, I think it's less important. It's really about finding the thing that works for you. And then to do it in, you know, just set yourself up for success. Don't try and meditate for two hours every day for, you know, five days a week, but really 10 or 15 minutes is fine. Even five minutes is a great start if you can do it regularly. In that way, the gym metaphor is good. It's like lifting weights. You know, you're not going to lift 100 pounds once a week. You're going to lift 10 pounds four or five times a week, and you'll see results. So um, sort of just steady and slow and finding support, that's, that's what's important. The equation that Sebene mentioned really stayed with me after this interview. Pain times resistance equals suffering. So much of the heartache we feel and the anxiety that accrues in our bodies is the result of this resistance, of being unwilling to feel the feeling. And I was reminded of a quotation by John Bradshaw that I discovered in one of my favorite books, Eastern Body, Western Mind. And in it he says, emotions... And I should note that he hyphenates the word, like E-motion. Emotions are energy in motion. If they are not expressed, the energy is repressed. As energy, it has to go somewhere. Emotional energy moves us, as does all energy. To deny emotion is to deny the ground and vital energy of our life. When everything else is speeding up, sitting still gains new power. It helps us tune into those inner voices and come back into our bodies and sit with our emotions long enough to maybe, just maybe, find a little clarity. If you enjoyed this episode and you don't yet subscribe to my newsletter, there's a 99.9% chance that you will like it. I send it out twice a month, just like this podcast, and it includes updates about my latest projects, as well as a carefully curated selection of links about creativity, productivity, and finding more meaning at work. You can sign up on the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. How would you define creativity in 10 words or less? So I know you asked me for 10 words or less, but I just want to say that I was journaling years ago and I realized that creative and reactive are the same words. The C just moves, which I think is really interesting. And my friend Rebecca asked me what the C is. And I think that it's curiosity and consciousness and connection and confidence, and let me come up with one more C word, compassion. I want to extend much appreciation for all of his hard work to my producer, Matt Susich, and to Devin Craig Johnson, who composed our original theme music and helps out with the audio polishing. If you feel like this episode changed your outlook and you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, you will have my eternal gratitude. If you have 20 seconds to write one, there's a link right in the bottom of the show notes. As always... 
Thanks for tuning in, and remember to hurry slowly. <laughs>